Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On today's episode, our guests are Susan Basterfield and Gina Stevens-Remby, collaborators in the Inspiral Network, a collective of social enterprises, ventures, and individuals working collaboratively across the world to support people who want to spend their lives changing the world. Inspiral builds collaborative tools and processes to facilitate the sharing of money through participatory budgets, the sharing of control through collaborative decision-making, and the sharing of information through their handbook of agreements and guidelines. Aside from her role as Inspiral's foundation director, Susan also co-founded Greater Than, a professional training and coaching organization at the forefront of decentralized, self-managed, and participatory work. Gina's passion for equity and justice led her to her current role as operations lead of Inspiral's Developers Academy. We speak to Susan and Gina today about the work they do, the vision they bring, and how they are leveraging both to transform the way we think and go about work. Welcome, Susan and Gina. Thanks. It's great to be here. Hi. Hello. I reached out to both of you, as you know, as part of a series on feminism and business. And this is a follow-up to my interview, a two-part interview with C.V. Harquail about her book, Feminism, A Key Idea for Business and Society. But your network, your work, and your values, I reached out to you because it's feminist. And I wanted to know, did you know that? I've been really, yeah, it's Gina here talking. Um, I've been really struck by your invitation to this, and it's given me a lot of uh, space for thought to reflect on this. And uh, I think increasingly, yes, it is feminist, and I don't think necessarily that's where it started out. Inspiral and the Inspiral Network started about seven years ago as a group of web developers who uh, were predominantly male, white, relatively privileged, well earning people who decided to come together to do well-paid work so that they could do some voluntary work on good causes. And uh, by default, and if we look at where, you know, women are in society at this point or were even then in the tech sector, yeah, I've got questions on how we managed to embed feminist practices over time And I think we're much better at it now than we were then. And I'm curious to reflect a bit more on that with you today. And Susan, what about you? It's a, I I was just struck with Gina's introduction around the sort of origin story of Inspiral and the, and the men in the tech sector who noticed the opportunity to support one another whilst trying to make larger and larger spaces for them to do the work in the world that mattered to them. And it just struck me that that feeling very clearly that that impulse was a probably unconscious feminist longing. Yeah, yeah, I I would probably agree. And over the time in particular, in the early days, it was very male dominated. And yet, uh, relatively early on, even that group and growing group of people became much better at acknowledging um, things like emotional labor and starting to pay people for work traditionally done 
in unseen ways and often unpaid ways to say this this is a job and we're going to be raising money to pay for it. Um, and part of it was done voluntarily. There was, um, I believe, a group of people called a support crew uh, who just existed to, you know, give support to others in a variety of ways, but also roles like uh, we ran a co-working space for a, for a while and uh, we employed a community manager who was responsible for, you know, anything from the vibe to the invoices and the fact that it was being recognised that she, Becca, was doing a lot of emotional labour that I think even over the years now we have gotten increasingly better at naming and recognising and rewarding, whether it's financially or, you know, in other ways as well. I think there's a couple of couple of noticings that I have there in that there, there was something in the coming together of this group of humans with the principles of agency autonomy and self-organization that allowed potentially the parsing of those roles to uh, become explicit and, um, as Gina said, um, allowed those to be more and more recognized and valued. So, Gina, getting back to the history of Inspiral, um, you were a developer at the time, and how did you come to get to know these other male developers that were part of the original group? Well, actually, neither Susan nor myself were around in the very early days. I think the time period we're talking about at the moment is about 2012, uh, at which point I was living in London, and I don't know where you were living, Susan, but I, I was I was living here in, in Wellington, and I was in the tech space. I, I my whole career has been in the in the tech sector or the tech space as a female in that in that world. But uh, up until five years ago, it was oriented around senior leadership positions in big multinationals like IBM and HP and Vodafone and Telstra. And uh, I'd I'd heard of news, of uh, Inspiral um, because they were these cool kids that were not the normal tech geeks sitting in a co-working um, with their headphones on and not talking to each other, but they were actually being active in the community and be, and inviting other kind of washed up middle-aged corporate hacks like me into their orbit, which was thrilling and terrifying. And so I did start um, with a group of developers quite intentionally invited by Joshua Vile, who was um, one of the main people who schemed up this concept called Inspiral. And he'd invited a number of them to come together and uh, start dreaming and exploring what alternative ways of doing business whilst building community could look like. And it's something that he's been on the track of doing for the majority of his adult life and as it happened, centred in Wellington, uh, which then coincided with um, movements like the Occupy movement in Wellington uh, that happened where Lumio, one of the ventures that uh, is, uh, is part of Inspiral, came out of. And so there was a few people who came together in that time um, from a variety of the spectrum of activism, from very corporate to very Wow, the opposite of corporate, I An suppose. Anarchic. Yeah, anarchist, perhaps. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and uh, the beauty still is that people have got a very different take on, you know, what's good and what's bad and how anarchist or corporate can you be in life and live with integrity. Uh, and so these developers then expanded. I mean, people started showing up 
um, through gatherings and meetings. I personally showed up in um, 2014, having moved back to Wellington from London, where I'd been working in uh, advertising and consulting, but volunteering in social enterprise and social impact work and managed to get a job um, as part of the LIFEAC team running running a number of events for them and then managing to stick around and make my income come from Inspiral ever since then, basically. Was there anything about Joshua or the people that he came to connect with, the original founders of the network and their background that you think inspired them to turn to anarchism, as you said, was an activism? They started off in a corporate background. Was it in finance or what other uh, industries? I'm not entirely sure about really where those people came from, but I do think uh, it, it is what brought them together, which is that commitment to doing business differently and using business as a vehicle to turn the world into a better place. They all came from a um, tech background at the time, um, with a very high earning potential, essentially. Um, so definitely, you know, privileged, involved in being able to do this type of work or in, in making this a lifestyle and income of sorts. I, I'm just trying to understand if there's some sort of formula <laughs> for igniting activism in people, if there's some level of minimum level of exposure to oppression or to ex- exposure to enlightenment around their privilege that can get them to move from complacency to activism. Or, or it, I just am curious because I, obviously I want to look for that. I want to employ that formula to activate more people. Yeah, I'm not sure there's a, a formula. I mean, a little bit more, I guess, like about Joshua's background. Like he was raised in a very progressive um, family, a very strong mom who's still involved, grew up in, you know, progressive scenarios, like living in ashrams and um, having that kind of upbringing. The way that he tells the story about how he came to this realization of trying to find his meaningful and significant work in life is a story of him um, after uh, losing somebody very close to him, going and walking the Camino and uh, ending up uh, underneath the Eiffel Tower where there was a a photography exhibition happening. And he tells the story of walking around that exhibition and having it kind of hit him like a lightning bolt that you know, he only has X number of uh, years, months, days, hours in his life to make a difference. And that that is what he would pinpoint as his um, his kind of lightning bolt moment. And to a degree, every single person who shows up at Inspiral one way or another has got a personal history and journey and point in life at which they decided that something else was needed or possible. And whilst I don't think it's necessarily a formula, it's been anything from um, the Occupy movement to personal burnout to um, being fed up in, you know, like you say, literally in finance uh, and people saying there must be more to this world and work than what I have been doing so far. And is there a way to turn impact-focused work into a livelihood? And I guess that's the question we've been pondering and have been working out how to create more livelihoods for increasing numbers of people from a variety of backgrounds and expertises. So I guess that's probably the meta piece. And um, 
I guess in terms of the hist history of Inspiral, um, that's come and originated through a group called Regen, um, from the word regeneration, which again has come from a movement called Heart Politics in New Zealand, uh, which again was, from what I understand, inspired by the Parehaka movement, which is the non-violent resistance uh, that happened in New Zealand in the as part of New Zealand colonisation and one of the really fundamental non-violent resistance movements um, in this on this land anyway. So I think there's both both the ideological history as well as the personal um, circumstances that lead people to show up here and make this their livelihood. Would you say uh, are most of the people who are part of the network from New Zealand? Uh, it definitely started out here, although lots of people have come from different places. And um, in the last five or so years, we've seen a definite trend to international people showing up virtually and in person. Um, so we run two in-person gatherings twice a year, uh, and we've got a summer one and a winter one. And the summer one in particular attracts, I mean, I think the last one was about 70 people and maybe 20 of those came from overseas or even more, including a number of um, people who are from New Zealand and now live overseas. So, yeah, at this stage, there's a very large international component to people who affiliate to the Inspiral Network. I think the more interesting question is not necessarily where we've come from. Obviously, so I, I was born in the US, uh, Gina was born in Germany, Joshua was born in Australia. Uh, but I think that there's something very particular about New Zealand and Wellington in particular that um, I'm not sure Inspiral could have grown as it did um, anywhere other than Wellington. Wellington is a very small, both geographically and uh, relationally, uh, university city. Um, it's where uh, the capital city of New Zealand Seat of um, government. Seat of government. Government. You can't walk down the street without, um, you know, you know, knowing, always knowing somebody, seeing somebody that you know. The the idea of one, two degrees of separation maximum is is, is real here, um, and I think that something about in the mixture of, uh, you know, human humans in in their late mid to late twenties in this place at the time, as Gina was mentioning, the intersection of the Occupy movement and other uh, activist movements just seemed like the the ideal kind of compost for something like Inspiral. Even the financial crisis, right? Indeed, yep. Yeah, totally. I was struck, Gina, when you used the word colonization, because I was thinking about, you know, in the U.S., there's a bifurcation of, you know, business and social impact. And even within the social impact space, that word would not be used unless unless they're specifically working in activities that are about anti-oppression work. And I can't imagine businesses being able to acknowledge that. And this was a conversation that I had with CV earlier when I interviewed her because on her, I met her actually at a conference in Toronto where I was exposed to, for the first time, the ritual of land acknowledgement, you know, in a professional setting. And, and on her website, in her bio, she also has a written land acknowledgement. And, and that's something that requires people with power and privilege to acknowledge their history, right? And I just, 
you're right. I feel like this couldn't have happened <laughs> in other places. And I'm really envious that、um, you're a part of that network. Yeah, I think in regards to, like you say, you know, naming colonization and oppression and injustices that. In particular, in New Zealand, the Indigenous people, the Maori people,、uh, experience is something people in the network, but even societally, New Zealand is getting better at. And I've seen a huge shift even in the five years that I've lived here, with in that space. So there's a founding document called the Treaty of Waitangi, which in Te Reo Maori is called Te Tiriti or Waitangi, which stipulates the three kind of grounding principles in which New Zealand would be settled and then colonised. Uh, which was misinterpreted in the translation into the indigenous language, and in which even in the last five or so years there seems to be, I mean, people have been campaigning on this for you know generations, obviously, but it seems to be hitting the mainstream more and more even in the last few years. And with Inspiral Dev Academy, the company I currently work for. We hosted an event just a couple of weeks ago called "Tetirati Meets Tech." What does it mean for the the treaty in relation to the tech sector? And someone who attended that event said, "You know, this isn't this is a conversation we couldn't have had five years ago." So it seems like there's an immense amount of all the generational work that's been done in it, in this has been trickling into the mainstream. And now, I mean, New Zealand history is being taught in the national curriculum for the first time. I think the year after next. And even that is a milestone in itself of acknowledging its colonial past and the oppression that people who have been on this land for such a long time have experienced ever, ever since. You know, white people have landed here, or people from other, well, European backgrounds mainly. Yeah, I, I love it. And and to get back to your description of Joshua's goals earlier, of how he he and his、uh, group of Co-founders were interested in building a company that centered agency and autonomy and self-organization. Those are definitely part of the feminist views towards business that is very much and stands in contrast to conventional business practices. And I just want to highlight the three questions that CV uses to help. Center the conversation around the differences between conventional and feminist views and practices. Those questions are: What should be the goals of business and work? How should collective control and coordination be achieved? And what values will lead to a bus- business's success? And so, those three values that I just mentioned, or approaches, even they're definitely both goals as well as part of the process with autonomy and. Self-organization, collective decision making,、um, being something that really drives you know, the difference between shareholders and owners being of the few and of the collective of of all, right? And so, can you talk about the ways in which Inspiral is organized and some of the decision making, participatory decision making, and governance structures? That are in place to help build that culture of collective decision making and self organization. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think I think one of the hardest things for people to understand or get their heads around is that Spiral isn't a company that employs people. And Spiral is an intentional collective of individuals that have come together with the common purpose of. 
helping and supporting each individual to do the work that matters to them in the world. So we don't have like a huge big purpose statement or like a, you know, heaps of vision and uh, mission statements, et cetera. Our, our, our organizing principle is around that, that, one, that one key idea of more people working on stuff that matters and supporting one another to do whatever that work is to, to each individual and, you know, being undogmatic about what that is. And so structurally, the way that that works is from Joshua's original impulse of collectivizing um, and providing opportunities for people to really feel a possibility of their, their, their work or their, their like technical gifts or um, competency-based gifts in the world intersecting with what their meaningful and significant work is. A group of people came together as the first members of Inspiral. So membership in Inspiral is uh, currently a group of 20 of us that have one non-financial share in the Inspiral Foundation. And the only elements of responsibility for membership is to invite new contributors and to steward the Kopapa or the culture of the collective. So when we talk about holding common values, the, the way that's worked for at least the past five years to kind of create that, the, I guess, the, the, the boundary and the invitation is that you can't just rock up and join Inspiral. Um, becoming an official part of Inspiral requires uh, a proactive act on the part of the person who becomes interested. And that is around starting to build a relationship. So uh, having a first coffee or having a first Zoom conversation, uh, that person will more than likely then be able to assess other, other people in the ecosystem that might um, be helpful or, or interesting for this uh, new person to talk to. And over time, that can be a week, that could be a couple of months, the individual will start to figure out if they feel like Inspiral is a place where they can either contribute or somehow um, find a way to support the needs that they have currently. And then when that becomes the case, all that is is a, a, is a case of a member say, um, sending a real quick email to our operations crew and you as a new contributor get onboarded to every single part of Inspiral. So you get onboarded to our Lumio, which is our, our active dynamic and perpetual place of all decisions that have ever been made in the network. You get access to all of our Slack channels, so to participate in any of the numerous, I don't know, 150 different initiatives that are happening in the, in the ecosystem at the moment. And of course, then the uh, expectation is that you will start to participate and come along to our, by our twice annual gatherings, as, as, Gina, as Gina mentioned. From the perspective of governance, we are a limited liability company. And the reason that we're set up that way is that uh, charitable status in New Zealand has limitations on just um, some of the opportunities that um, limited liability companies can access. 
Our board, however, is what we call the MVB. It's a minimum viable board. So as a, a board member, our only and our, our, our key Responsibility. responsibilities, thank you, Dana, are just to uh, ensure that um, Inspiral is meeting all of its compliance and fiduciary responsibilities and managing that risk. The board is not involved in any type of strategy or any type of doing around uh, the actualization of the project. That work is done by anybody who's interested, right? And that is coordinated by a role called the Catalyst. So we are now into the fourth iteration of the Catalyst experiment. Gina was a Catalyst in the first experiment about four or five years ago. I was in the second iteration of that experiment. Um, We finally got to the point where we are able to pay catalysts to do the work of catalyzing, organizing, coordinating, and pointing the right resources at the right opportunities um, within the ecosystem. That the actual work is done by working groups. So um, the idea that uh, individuals can contribute to everything from a, a a brand working group, which is around the um, how we're able to use our brand to the communications working group, to a gatherings working group, and everything in between, finding a place where you can contribute your um, 15% time or 5% time, whatever that might be. Now, the financial, I guess, operations of the, of the, of the organism is very light. So our monthly nut, if you will, is around 3500 Dollars, um, New, Zealand dollars? New Zealand dollars, so very, very lean for, an, um, for a, a collective of 150 humans. And the way that that is funded is each person who's a, a member or contributor of Inspiral is invited to really think about what the value of Inspiral is to them and doing it in kind of a fun way. So is being part of this uh, experiment worth a coffee, a beer, or a pizza a week to you? If it's a coffee, it's five bucks a week. If it's a beer, it's 10 bucks a week. If it's a pizza, it's 25 bucks a week. And that's how we fund the core operational costs of the, of the organization. We do also do what we call co-budgeting, which is ventures will choose to contribute a percentage of whatever, a percentage of revenue, a percentage of profit, a fixed amount per month. And those funds go into what we call co-budget, which is a way for the network to spend our money together. So in addition to making all of our decisions collectively by way of Lumio, which is a, uh, a tool that, that was invented and created to, to help support uh, organizations to make governance and community-wide decisions in a very coherent way asynchronously and then co-budget which allows us to spend our money together and the way that that works currently is that two or three times a year when the co-budget funds reach a, a certain level we make a call for proposals and anybody in the network can propose any type of project uh, we've just gone through a co-budget uh, round where i think we spent nineteen thousand dollars um, funding everything from ensuring that the gatherings working group has a little bit of a buffer to pay deposits, et cetera, for events, to uh, creating a bucket, to pay somebody to 
uh, do grant applications um, for additional funds that might be of to support the network and everything in between. So I think that kind of touches on all of the governance level elements and operational level elements of the network. I'm sure you have questions. <laughs> I do. I was busy scribbling notes while you were talking. I hope I can capture all of them. Is there any part of your network that is actually generating revenue on its own? Or is everything like Lumio's open source, so you're not charging for that, right? Is there anything um, anything that you've built that you're intending at some point to actually generate revenue? Or is the, is the money sort of negotiated through projects that the, the network decides to take on? So there's a bit of a distinction um, between the Inspiral network in that regard. So when Susan was touching upon the annual membership or contribution, that's the revenue that goes into the running the core of Inspiral, if you want. And then there are a number of ventures um, that are affiliated with a network that have got their own business models. And Lumio, for example, is both open source and generates revenue through a subscription model. Uh, that I believe varies between community groups and corporate clients. Um, that is obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but uh, resourcing the further development of Lumio as a software product. Uh, Inspiral Dev Academy has got an educational offering uh, in the form of a boot camp to get people to a stage of work-ready web developer, and that's a um, product that costs about 9000 New Zealand dollars for a 10-week program. So... Each of the ventures affiliated have got their own revenue models and ways of making money. Uh, there's a number of consulting offerings um, that, you know, often charged by the hour or per delivery of a product or event or similar. Um, Lifehack, which was a systems intervention around mental health, actually had government funding for four years. So that was it wasn't revenue as such, but it had money available um, to provide people with a livelihood and um, operational budget to make programs and events happen. I'm just trying to think. Yeah, well, ones. A great, greater than my company, um, uh, Fairground Accounting, who is a, a for-purpose accounting firm, um, Optimi, who it was, who started off as um, kind of the admin folks doing um, Inspiral um, uh, bookkeeping, and now has a has a, a offering, and that. So the idea is that we've all. It, Inspiral has created conditions for us to find our our co-founders and our prototyping our, ground, mainly, isn't it? Prototyping ground for creating our livelihood um, ventures. So all of us are. I mean, I think that for the first time in a long time, the the level of kind of financial abundance in terms of most of us being quote unquote gainfully employed um, through ventures that. Um, sprung from the from the training ground of Inspiral is is a real thing. And yeah, so Inspiral doesn't employ anybody, but the multitude of ventures that Inspiral have has birthed is providing um, you know, very abundant livelihood for for most of us. Um, certainly in the core, if not um, those 150 that are in the um, in the larger community. I'd say maybe about 60 people, 70, who probably make their main livelihoods out of yeah, kind of core and spiral work if you want. Yeah, it'd be good to or, do account to do account yeah. of that. Yeah. So, would you say that Inspiral is basically the the network behind incubating these ideas, these prototyping, as you said, these livelihood ventures, um, so to the extent that 
once there's a feasible business model that's been identified, then the group decides to move forward with it. Some of the, all of the ventures contribute some amount of uh, money back, and that is in line with the revenue that they're generating. So um, Action Station, for example, which is a multi-issue campaigning organization that was born out of the network, is a member-run entity, and they contribute a small amount back, whereas some of the ones that generate a more generous revenue and perhaps under, you know, like a consulting model or similar um, provide money back to the foundation in proportion to what they think is reasonable and possible for them at the time. And that's a number that's flexible and can change depending on how the income levels are looking for those individuals as well. I see. I mean, yeah, it's it's very important to note we're not we're not like a standard incubator where the the central entity is taking equity or there are any mm-hmm. any demand any either demands implicit or explicit. It's really based on kind of trust and love and support and the idea of um, when abundance appears, um, feeding it back into the into the middle is good. And I think the relationships for me, Inspiral is a network of relationships at its most basic and um, people probably feel more at home the more relationships they have that center them to this work and place and people Um, and that too probably goes back to the likelihood of starting a company or initiative of sorts within or out of the network I would say um, that there's a different level of people um, to take risks and those who are more willing to take risks might support those who are, you know, on the fence and whether they should start a company or something of sorts. And also acknowledging that not everyone has to start something new. I've been around the Inspiral Network for coming up to six years and I've never started a thing of my own. I've always come to support other people's um, work. And, you know, there's there's no right or wrong way about it. People don't show up with the expectation to start anything new necessarily um but people can and people are encouraged when they choose to do that i think another thing that is worth mentioning is going going back to the either the feminist impulse or the feminist reality um probably about three or four years ago uh inspiral first started writing down um some of our practices and processes and that was a that was a trigger to to many people especially the the anarchists in a way. But one of the discoveries that we made um, that has really shaped certainly my thinking, if not the shaping of the of the entity, is a piece written by Joe Freeman out of the uh, early feminist movement called The Tyranny of Structurelessness. And she, like, this is a seminal piece that talks about well-meaning uh, self-organizers getting together to do something positive, but allowing a uh, misguided sense of reaction against any type of structure to or allow like perceived it, authority or perceived power, right? anything, right? To, 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 you know, the, the, the eventual either implosion or paralysis that can come from not mindfully and thoughtfully putting some scaffolding in place. So I think that it's always worthwhile mentioning that as sort of an, I think, an aha moment for the for Inspiral, the ecosystem. Uh, one really big part that I've been um, mulling over for, well, a good year, I think, at least, uh, well, longer, but explicitly for about a year or so, is the, the role of privilege in volunteering. And for me, this came to a head. Um, a number of people co-authored a book 
uh, last year or the well, it's been years in the making, but was published last year um, called Better Work Together. And I drew together a piece in there that was kind of a collective reflection on power and privilege. And I said, but what, you know, how do those fit together in the context of Inspiral? And one of the contributors to that piece framed it so well when, when they said, you know, only the privileged in the past have been able to volunteer because it takes, it takes energy, it takes time, it takes space. You know, for people who are full up, you know, whether it's raising children or worrying about livelihoods, those people won't necessarily be the ones who make it to the, you know, inner workings if you want, because the capacity to engage isn't there. So for me, it's been really poignant to think about how we create opportunities where we either make, you know, we change the structures to welcome those people in, or we um, acknowledge the work that is needing to happen in a monetary way that enables people to make that their livelihood. So, I mean, I, I um, have a two-year-old at home and I know that in the first year of their life, I was basically unable to follow any of the Lumio conversations because I just purely didn't have the brain space to follow. And I felt disengaged and said, shall I, shall I be stepping out? Is this still a place for me? People think, no, we need, we need all kinds of people to do all kinds of work. And what you're doing at the moment is fundamentally important to the well-being of one person and what you're doing is exactly right and as and when you know your capacity comes back or the energy for it then you know move in more closely again but don't not show up or you know leave because you feel like you can't right now so I feel like that's a big being a big piece of work from a feminist point of view in particular because we know that type of work tends to fall on women predominantly um, to work out how we acknowledge the privilege required to do this type of work and how we um, compensate people or acknowledge people at least um, who do that work and who have to work a lot harder to be able to do this type of living and livelihood and working. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Gina. I think that um, when you were talking about the privilege of volunteering and your book, Better Work Together, I was thinking about the privilege of breastfeeding. <laughs> Uh, and and how so many pe- women of color, especially women who are less economically secure, they don't have the space or the the accommodations in their work environments usually, or the social capital to demand accommodations to be able to breastfeed, and you know potentially also like access to the knowledge that that's uh, helpful to their health and the health of their baby. And so I think that. This concept of security from really uncertainty, being able to not just participate in volunteering, but also become aware of your network and even consider joining it. Is that something that people of color, people <laughs> of different economic and wealth statuses have been able to access? And how do they come to the network, those who might be less privileged? I personally think that we have done very badly at inviting that type of diversity into the network part for parts of the reason that we've identified around the privilege required to do this, the acknowledgement. Um, so by and large, it's not a um, economically or ethnically very diverse network um, at all. It's predominantly white people from a, you know, relative background of privilege, social from a social economic status um, I don't know if you disagree, Susan. No, not at all. And 
Um, I mean, the, the way, you know, if, you know, in trying to rationalize it for myself, I, I can't. And at the same time, we've been wondering for a long time how, how we could be do doing this. it differently, yeah. but then also considering how and where is our place in that for me recently, I've been um, thinking, you know, we were at the summer retreat in February this year, because uh, obviously we're in the Southern Hemisphere, so our summer is in, um, you know, January, January and February. <laughs> Uh, and I was looking around the room and I said, perhaps Inspiral is a is an example of white people practicing community for people that have been so out of touch with their personal and geographic um, histories that perhaps this is a place where we practice how we come together in ways that um, other ethnic groups or people from different social or cultural backgrounds have been doing very deeply for generations. And, I mean, I grew up... Um, as in a small nuclear family in the centre of Berlin, there wasn't very much community where I grew up in the in the truest sense of the word, and it's something I have found here in ways that far exceeds beyond anything I could have ever expected um, for for my own life. Like I'm delighted by it, and it doesn't, you know, like you say, Susan. It, at the same time, still I look around the room and wonder how homogenous we are as a group, and. Uh, and, and how we do that. And still, you know, thinking about my own role in this, um, when I returned from parental leave um, about a year and a half ago, I had these conditions or principles that I wanted for a, for a job, for an employment, for my own life. And it was really, it was really set on having part-time work in a um, challenging and complex role in something that was well-paid, that was you know, possibly remote when I needed to, to be family friendly, flexible working hours. And I know that that's a list that many people can only dream of. And nonetheless, it's something I found at Dev Academy where I essentially run human resources, finances and operations on 24 hours a week. Um, and when I need to bring my toddler into work, she comes along, you know, when she's sick or we don't have um, daycare for her. I can bring her along and she's, she's made to feel welcome mm. and she plays with my colleagues and the people in the space. This concludes part one of our conversation with Susan and Gina. Tune in next week when we learn about how other ventures in the Inspiral Network are employing feminist practices to build cultures and companies motivated by agency, autonomy, and self-organization. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by CanDoIt Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.